You're listening Ink Studs on CITR 101.9 FM. My guest this week is uh, Jim Woodring. Uh, Jim's been someone that I've uh, wanted to talk to for quite a while, uh, and I know folks have wanted me to talk to him, so I'm very happy. Jim is joining me today. Uh, his latest book is Fran from Fantagraphics, a um, follow-up of sorts to uh, Congress of Animals, which came out last year, um, as well as recent books include Problematic, uh, Weathercraft, um, Frank, the portable Frank, seeing things, as well as, I guess, in next year at some point you have a new gym collection coming out. Yeah, that's right. It'll be a repackaging of all that vintage material with some new stuff added. Nice. Is it, uh, like, new stuff you've created, or gym stuff that wasn't included in the old work? Well, both. Uh, there are a lot of things that were done in the vein of that strange autobiographical stuff that I did during the late 80s and 90s and that just didn't make it into the to the magazine gym. And then there's uh, some things I've uh, done fairly recently that are sort of revisit those themes. And I'm also going to do a new comic to kind of function as a capstone and it on the chest of the rest of the material and sort of hold it in place. I read um, a bunch of Jim's stuff over the last week and, well, I've read everything over the last week. Um, it's a big stack of comics and or books. Um, but one of the things I was thinking about with Jim and kind of knowing you were born, I think it was 1952? Yes. And, and I know you're kind of... Um, I know you've worked with Justin Green, so I'm presuming you're a fan of Justin Green. Oh, God, um, yeah, yes. And so I'm, I'm just kind of presumptuously thinking that um, you're 18 in 1970, and I'm wondering what kind of effect, um, or if you had seen the underground comics at that point. Well, yeah, and as a matter of fact, they were the first comic books I was really interested in. Aside from the old Mad Ten Centers, I just didn't pay much attention to comics when I was growing up. And then I saw, oh, I forget what the first underground comics I saw were, something by R. Crumb, Head Comics, that uh, book. And uh, it just, like it did with so many other people, it just opened up my mind. And then finding all of the other all of the other work by all those other early undergrounders who uh, sort of caught that wave that Crumb started and uh, were able to express themselves in in that interesting format just completely swept me off my feet i was uh, i i saw those things and i thought this is uh, this is for me this is this is a great form of expression these comics now i know um you mentioned drawing as a child and i know you also worked in animation point so had you been drawing um the whole time growing up and kind of underground comics worked into that into what you were seeing and what you wanted to do well yeah i had been drawing my whole life and i'd also uh specifically been trying to express things that were of interest to me and that were somewhat personal and idiosyncratic the way that i saw the world the things that spooked me and intrigued me and upset me and generally interested me. I was always trying to capture in my own work uh, the kind of feelings and moods that I got from other artwork that I had seen, which uh, was a pretty limited range of stuff because I was so unsophisticated and so disconnected from the world that the only things that I did see were things that kind of accidentally drifted in front of me. So uh, illustrations by Boris Artsebashev, for example, were... Uh, were were uh, those things when I saw them completely got under my skin and and flipped me out and made me think oh you know you can do these these cartoony drawings that have this otherworldly power and I thought that's what I wanted to do with myself and with my own work and so I just kind of struggled around in the dark trying to figure out how to create pieces of work that would conjure up similar emotions in other people if I possibly could. I didn't know about surrealism or anything like that until I was 16, and some friends took me to a big retrospective of Dada and surrealism at the L.A. County Art Museum, and when I saw those pictures, it just about 
it just about put me in the ground. I was so completely overwhelmed at the realization that there were adult men and women who were devoting their lives and their talents to expressing these deep, difficult mysteries. Mm-hmm. And when I saw that, I just thought, "That's it. This is my this is this is my crowd. These are the people I want to associate with and and be associated with. This is what I want to do." And then when the undergrounds came out, uh, I saw that same iconoclast attitude and and uh, that same inclination to express oneself without worrying about genre or context in the, in those comics. And uh, I'd always loved cartoons, and so I thought this is good. It's this kind of uh, doing things more for yourself and less for specific populist, I guess, commercialism. Yeah, just just pure self-expression. I had some things that I really wanted to get on paper specifically because I wanted to see if I could create pictures that would that would uh, provoke, at least in me and perhaps in others, the same kind of reactions that I had from you know other works that I had seen, like The Garden of Earthly Delights, for example, or paintings by De Carico or Max Ernst or Dali, you know, those things just mesmerized me. And I assumed when I saw ancient sculptures like the the Venus of Willendorf that those things were made for the same purpose. You would make them and then you would stare at them and you would you would feel that you had just created some sort of reductive key that enabled you to see the universe in a more, you know, focused and specific way so that you might be able to get your mind around it a little bit. And that's that is what I had always wanted to do, but I'd never had any any kind of uh, training or been surrounded by people who could show me how to do that. So I didn't have a clue as to how to actually do it until I saw these exemplars. You know, the surrealists and the underground cartoonists. They really pointed in directions that I wanted to go. Now, I, I get a big feeling, kind of, an interest in. I don't want to see Eastern mysticism because that sounds really, I don't know, I feel like that almost sounds kind of me westernizing something, but like in Indian art styles and um, Hindu art, um, was that a particular interest at a point that, that came in? Because you talk about, um, in Jim, about, uh, it, I think most of them are dream comics, but the friend that was reading the Krishna or joined Hare Krishnas in LA, and I'm just wondering about how how these elements came in or did they come in well i do have a deep and abiding uh, interest in vedanta or hinduism as it's called and that is uh that is a big part of my life and so it occasionally pops up in my work probably pervades it to some degree or another although i've i've, I've never actually done a comic about that specifically i've never tried to uh you know put my my religious beliefs in my work in a straightforward here it is kind of way mm-hmm. i i get the feeling that it kind of comes in as kind of an influence of um a way of helping to shape ideas or navigate ideas well, it's it's a it's a philosophy and it's also a path. So it's a way of looking at the world and it's also a way of living in the world that, uh, um, you know, where where feedback and results are experienced. And uh, it's the it's the the larger context for me. It's uh, it's really the, the the most important thing to me and the work. Natu- the work that I do naturally reflects my interest in that because I'm not writing, you know, I'm not trying to tell uh, stories that have nothing to do with that. I'm trying to talk about things that, that I think are essential and important, and naturally they all are tied into these uh, structures for, you know, getting at the truth. Do you have, like, questions in mind that you try to answer through your work? I don't. I have questions that I formulate, but I have uh, questions that I that I guess we all sort of are, you know, big open question, open-ended questions that we're all faced with, and those 
those interest me. Most of the most of the things that I I put into my work are just ideas or impressions or uh, uh, sequences of events that just occur to me without me trying to think something up. They present themselves to me and I put them down. Mm-hmm. So the very little conscious, constructive thought goes into my work except for the question of how to organize it and present it. I, I collect the ideas rather than think them up. It's not like if I'm, you know, somebody who writes a mystery story, they have to come up with a plot and then they have to come up with a, you know, a structure where it will, will all work and it's written very much with the reader in mind. And uh, what I do is nothing like that at all. I, I just, to the extent that I construct and organize my stories, it's just so that I can present these these bound ideas as coherently as possible. I was reading um, Problematic or flipping through it, going through it, um, and I was really interested by, there were some spreads where you'd have Frank going through a room and you'd have these descriptions of everything in the room, um, which you don't do in your in your regular Frank work, and I'm wondering if that's kind of a process type thing that goes in to when you're developing these stories, um, kind of how you describe these visuals, and, and I'm curious about how this kind of monologue plays well when i write down my ideas for stories they i do write them down in words i don't i don't begin to draw them until later so those things that were in the sketchbooks were one or two steps down the road first thing that i that i do when i put one of those stories together is i write down everything in words and then i start trying to figure out how to express it in pictures it's interesting how you gotta you need to, I guess, synthesize that down so much because your work is predominantly wordless and how that works of how you get from that point A to that point B. Yeah, it can be a challenge. And there's a lot of wasted panels because you can't say, you know, meanwhile at the, you know, back at the factory, you just, you have to show the guy going to the factory. So there's a lot of interstitial connective tissue there. Now, um, in the latest work, the Fran and uh, Congress of Animals, um, one thing that got me thinking about it, because they both kind of play together in different aspects, and I was thinking about, in your wider work, is there, do you have a sense of chronology or kind of uh, a linearness, or is it all very non-linear, and it's just taking characters and how they interact in these situations? Well, I don't have a sense of uh, chronology, but I do have a sense of I do have a sense of of what is correct and what isn't correct. There's a lot of rules that I'm unconsciously aware of when I draw these comics. And these last two books, Congress of the Animals and Fran, were interesting for me to do, painful but interesting because uh, Congress of the Animals. I had there I don't know how deeply you want me to get into this if I'm if I'm going on too long just tell me to shut up but No no I'm 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 really interested. Well Please. there's you know the way the Frank stories evolved is I drew the character Frank and he I liked the way he looked and then I drew this character Manhog and I thought oh you know those two would would play well off each other and so I started started making stories about them and adding new characters to each story as I did them. And the whole thing just kind of expanded without a lot of thought on my part. I never really sat down and thought, oh, I'll, I'll build this whole thing up. It just kind of grew like a crystal. And it was sort of like uh, the picture, of the, the whole picture of what I was doing gradually came into focus as I was doing it. And I, it was kind of like... Uh, eavesdropping on somebody else's experiences because I wasn't really planning this so much as I was discovering it. And at a certain point I realized, you know, this landscape that Frank lives in is got, it's got some kind of consciousness and it's running the show. And there's some significance to the fact that Frank lives in a house and he doesn't have a job. Why is he, how did that happen? You know, there's, there's a story there that I don't really understand. And when I did Congress of the Animals and I had him lose his house kind of on a whim and he got a new house, Mm -hmm. 
uh, the storyline that suggested itself is that he would have to go to work for this house. And I didn't realize until it was after, till it was all done, but uh, Frank has gone from being a tenant who lives rent-free in this place to being a guy who has to work at this horrible job just to stay in a house. You know, what happened to a situation there? There's, there's some invasive principle which has moved in, and now everything is different. Well, you kind and, of have him growing up a bit in a way. Well, I don't know if he's growing up, but he's he's sort of uh, the wheel of fortune is turning for him. And my original idea was that I would take him away from the Unifactor, this place where he lives, and see what would happen to him outside it. And what happened is he met this sort of female counterpart to himself and brought her back. And the story dictated itself, and I drew it the way that it came without really thinking about what would happen. And so Congress of the Animals ends with him bringing this element from another reality into his world. And at first I was thinking, oh, you know, this might kill the whole deal because Frank has always been a guy who got up early in the morning and ran out to see the sun come up because he was just infatuated with the phenomenal world and he spent his days exploring it with the complicit involvement of the Unifactor. And I thought, okay, well, now he's like as good as married. He's got this female companion. Maybe he won't get up in the morning and go see the sunrise anymore. Maybe he'll sleep in or read the newspaper and just hang out and kill time. Maybe, you know, having this figure in his life will put paid to his sense of of uh, the need to investigate things and discover things. Maybe he'll become complacent and domesticated. And so I tried to get away from that and to write a different story entirely, but the story that became Fran just imposed itself upon me against my will. And I realized while I was doing it that that, that bringing her in there was really like putting a, some sand into a pearl or into an oyster or something. I, she really had to be dealt with mm-hmm. in a certain way. And when the storyline that finally came out in the book began to reveal itself to me, I was thinking, you know, this is really brutal. This is this is screwed up. I'm not really sure that I want to, uh, I'm not sure that I want to go in this direction, but I could not turn away from it. And it really kind of took me by surprise the extent to which this, I mean, it's a cliche to, for an artist to say, oh, you know, I'm not really in control of my creations. They have a life of their own. They end up telling me what to do. But it's it's absolutely true in this case, you know, this whole frank world or whatever it is that suggests itself through these characters in this situation really wanted to tell me how things were going to be and would not let me do it my way i spent like eight months hammering out that story and fighting it and eventually it prevailed and i had this story structure that presented itself to me earlier of a double spiral and i tried to do it consciously and i couldn't find a way to do it so i gave it up and then when the thing was done, I realized that the story forms a perfect double spiral. It's 100 pages long. The, the pivotal scene comes on page 50, which was not intended. And I thought, you know, if you've got a double spiral, an F-shaped thing that mm-hmm. spirals down in the middle, there's an implied connection between those two centers, even though they're removed, which almost sounds like quantum mechanics, spooky behavior at a distance, something like that. And when it was all done... You know, that double spiral thing was just there, even though I hadn't consciously found a way to do it. So I really feel, again, it sounds corny to say it, but I just was just a vehicle of expression for this this idea somehow. And after the whole two-book story was completed and I read them as one story together, I saw all kinds of resonances and fulfilled prophecies and all kinds of things that I hadn't put in there intentionally but were just there. It, so it's, it, it kind of spooked me a little bit. It's really interesting because I, I was saying earlier how it's not really a sequel as much as it's it's definitely like a companion book and it's and it's interesting how you kind of you tell the story and are able to kind of weave them together in an interesting way. Um, maybe interesting kind of word, but it's it's complex, and like I, I really enjoy that lit. Well, you know, I didn't intend for it to be a sequel so much as I just intended it to be a new story. Mm-hmm. But it ended up not just being a sequel, but the resolution to a problem that I didn't even realize was a problem that I did in Congress of the Animals, which was introducing Fran. 
<laughs> and I just, you know, something had to be done about that. And the way it worked out surprised me. And the way that book ends, Fran, it's like, it, it you know, you could uh, read Congress of the Animals and then read Fran and then read Congress of the Animals again. And, you know, the ending of Fran leads right into the beginning of Congress of the Animals. Mm-hmm. And there's uh, some kind of a, some sort of a time thing that's gone on. And when you, you know, the way she treats him is kind of horrifying. But at the end, there's a little bit of a eternal sunshine of the spotless mind thing going on there because he, at the end, he's uh, he's he's happy in his in his ignorance of everything that has happened to him. I guess it's not exactly like that movie, but there's something something similar going on there where you're, you know, it's that that resolution he has. Yeah, you know, I thought I thought that Sunshine, Eternal Sunshine of the Spotless Mind movie was interesting because, you know, even though he knew that it was going to be a disaster, he determined that he wanted to have this relationship, and this is sort of a mirror image of that. I guess that's the main thing that, like, made me think about the temporal qualities, but also think about, like, how you have um, the different situations you'll put the characters in with each other. Um, the relationship between Frank and Manhog, um, and, and I'm curious, like, wondering about, do these relate to each other, or is it kind of playing with tropes of how they interact? Well, that's a hard question to answer. I have kind of one criterion for everything that I do when I'm coming up with these ideas, and that is, does it fluoresce? which is not quite the right word, but um, this is something I've said before. In, in the, you know, when you, you can look at two works of surrealism, two unprecedented, irrational images, and one will have tremendous power and one won't. Mm-hmm. And it's really hard to say why the powerful one is powerful. But uh, you, you can... It's something I'm sure everybody does when you're when you're looking at things like that. You can you can just tell that some things sort of reflect some kind of energy from a hidden source. You can't see the energy, you can't see the source, but you can tell that some things are just charged up in a certain way. And uh, the way I write these Frank stories is I will just sit down and write an opening sentence that's pretty easy to stick with, and then I'll write a second sentence. And if it doesn't have that fluorescence to some degree if it doesn't seem to be saying something about something that's hidden I'll cross it out and come up with another one and eventually I have enough sentences that aren't crossed out and they invariably stack up into a story so I don't um, uh, play with tropes as you said or try to come up with ideas I just it's like uh, throwing back the fish that are too small and keeping the big ones when I get an idea that works I keep it and at the end, I got a bunch of fish, and they spell out something. I, like I really don't know how it works. <laughs> I don't think anyone really specifically knows how storytelling. It's, no, it's but it's mystery. wonderful, and I and I, I think that you can really see in the most successful stories that there's an awful lot of unconscious um, logic that goes into making them. I think it's you know really great work. There's, there's stuff that is so heavy and so significant and so complex that it probably couldn't have been done intentionally. It's just mm-hmm. that the author has tapped some kind of a vein and what they're putting down does make sense and does hang together in, in the way that nobody could adequately explain, but you can experience the, the energy of it when you read it or see it or however you take it in. I was thinking how um, Al Columbia's uh, Pim and Francie book kind of works well. Yeah in that context. Yeah, yeah, very much so. It's just one jolt of that energy after another. You just kind of keep running till the end. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And it's and in his case, in his work, it's, you know, it's never resolved. It's just one anxiety-producing you know, scenario after another. Mm-hmm. I get the feeling with yours, too, as well, like there's a certain, um, probably not as extreme or as implied as L's, but I, I do feel kind of an anxiety in some of your work, especially with Congress, where it's just like, at certain points, things just moving, 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 um, and you kind of watch everyone going through it. And I don't know if you get that same feeling from your work, this kind of like 
just things keep going and just monstrous things can happen yeah well i i guess i don't associate that with anxiety but i but it is uh i mean that's uh, just you know you want to have you want to have things happen so you, you <laughs> pick things that are happening Creatively, um, Frank has been your primary comics work for some time now. Um, what do you think about it that's kind of taken over from your other work, your Jib work, or your black and white stories, the two teen boys? Um, what do you think about them that's kind of pulled you in that direction? Well, for one thing, it's a lot uh, more pleasant for me to do than all that gym stuff, which, you know, required me to draw myself a lot. I didn't enjoy that very much. And it's it's uh, approaching a Frank story. It's it's just I don't it's a pleasant experience. I like drawing those characters. I like having my mind be in that place. It's rewarding to me personally to do it. So uh I and and it's 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 of all the work that I've done, it's like the most universally acceptable. Mm -hmm. So it's uh, I like that aspect of it too. That I'm not uh, intentionally limiting my audience by doing stuff that's really idiosyncratic and you know arcane. You um, yeah, because I know you did some books for Press Pop, the Japanese publisher, right? And has that been something where like 
folks have been able to connect internationally because of the lack of dialogue? Well, it certainly helps. I really don't know how the Japanese see my work. Um, the things that I've done for them, some of them have been quite different from the work that I've done from Fantagraphics. I've done two children's books for them involving Frank. And uh, they're, they're pretty different than the, 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 the American books because they wanted something different and it was easy for me to oblige. Telling the Frank stories is really easy for me. I can go in any direction and I can do it by the inch, yard, or mile. So <laughs> I don't really have a problem doing that stuff. And I don't have a problem doing something specific if somebody wants it. So, I mean, there's a lot of lot of range there. Do you approach the visuals that you create for the comics differently than you would with your painted work or your charcoal work? Well, I guess that I do because uh, because it's you know a comic and there's a lot of repetition. I have to kind of simplify things. And also, I have to try to... When I do a, an anecdotal drawing or a, a standalone picture, I generally try to just make it as charged as I can. Mm -hmm. And when you're doing a comic... I mean, someone who's really good at comics can do this really well. I kind of struggle at it and have kind of a hit-or-miss record of success with it. But there's a... You want to try to control you know, the speed, the emotional content. You want to have things that are more intense and less intense and quiet and rowdy and calm and then suddenly shocking. So there's a lot of a lot of kind of filmmaking vocabulary that goes into it. Mm -hmm. That is something I've noticed about your work. It's just the, um, the motion in it where you kind of kind of get that how to say like you say like the filmmaking technique like the the character in the situation and you kind of see him move through the gardens through the right. bushes through the ocean um which is interesting in that kind of continuous aspect yeah but you know with the frank comics i have to do that because they can't talk yeah there's a, in congress of the animals there's a scene where he and fran are sitting around the table having a conversation and there's no words or anything you just see their kind of mild face facial expressions and body language, mm -hmm. but you really can't tell what they're talking about. And that's as close as I can come to having words in a comic, and it's, it's not really very interesting. It was important to show that they were spending time together and able to talk. But uh, in those, I mean, it's necessary to have forward motion and things happening and, and catalysts coming into play and all that stuff just because you can't express ideas any other way in that particular format. I love, I actually really love those conversations because you do the, the, the way you kind of use the facial expressions um, to really push what's happening between them. Um, that's some of the stuff I love most is just seeing how kind of Frank responds to situations or how his face looks. Well, that was an ex that's an example of something that I had to contrive in order to get across something that that I already knew, which was that that they would uh, I had to show that they would be comfortable with each other, mm -hmm. even though they had just met, or seemingly had just met, and so that was uh, that was that was something that I had to deliberately concoct as a method of sh of getting that idea across. Now, you have the the Jim book coming out next year, um, and you mentioned you're doing a new kind of introduction or setup for the book. Um, how's that been kind of revisiting the work after some time um, of being steeped in Frank's world? Well, it's been interesting, and not, not because I've spent so much time in Frank's world, but because I've uh, that gym stuff I did when I was in my 30s mm -hmm. and, and early 40s, and I've, I've just changed a lot since then. When I was doing those comics, I was still in the in the in the how shall I put this I was still under the influence of things that had that were happening to me psychological things and sensory things and other things that were 
very, very, very resonant in my life, and I had kind of a sense of urgency about putting them down, and I really wanted to get these ideas across. Now I don't have the same the same energy or the same interest that if I was going to... There are other things that I want to express and other things that I want to deal with that don't relate to that kind of weird, hermetically sealed gym world. Mm-hmm. So... Um, I'm having a hard time not taking kind of a retrospective attitude and, you know, uh, creating kind of a look back at what I used to be and what the work used to be about. I, I'm trying to do something that that reflects the person that I am now and the way I feel about things now, which is also consonant with that older work. And it's difficult finding finding that uh, that approach because uh, if I know that if I try to do work that is like that old work, it just won't have the same energy. Mm-hmm. So I and if I do, if I approach my current life in that way, it's going to be. Uh, I, I well, I just don't know how dissonant it'll be. I'm still working on it. But one way or another, I have to kind of wrap the whole thing up in a bow and put it in the closet at this point because it's. Uh, it's it's that that whole gym thing is about something I used to be that I'm really not so much anymore. I've kind of moved into the next stage from there. They're very intense. Yeah, well, that was an they were based on intense <laughs> experiences. And and with the with the gym or with the Frank work, it's very, you know, while they're I was saying earlier things die, but it, it's also very kind of. It's a warm world. You use these kind of warm colors in the in the color work. It's... Yeah, well, the, you know the Frank stuff. I mean, it's it's pure cartooning, and that's a big part of what it is. Mm-hmm. And uh, you, you know, cartoon vocabulary responds well to certain things and not so well to others. So I'm really conscious of Frank being cartoons. Now, the gym stuff could have been drawn in any any number of different styles, and I would have I could have made it work one way or another. What made you want to start doing that gym work? Because you started doing, like you said, you were in your thirties when you started working on that. Um, well, actually, uh, when I was I was in my sort of nearing my late twenties when I started self-publishing Jim mm-hmm. as a Xeroxed pamphlet. And I had no intention of making it a comic book. I just wanted to get these drawings and these written pieces down and out there as my, you know, artistic contribution to the world. <laughs> and uh, I was uh, working in this animation studio, working on these terrible cartoons. And one of the guys I worked with was Gil Kane, the great American superhero artist. And he was good friends with Gary Groth, the publisher of Fantagraphics, and he introduced me to Gary, and Gary saw that magazine, and he said, you know, if you put some comics in here, I'll publish it, because I'm a comics publisher. And I said, I can do that. So I, that's why I became a cartoonist, because I had the opportunity to do it. I'm an opportunist. But I would have, uh, you know, I, if somebody had come along and said, oh, we'll publish your work if you'll just make it all writing and standalone drawings, I would have gone in that direction instead. I just wanted to have a forum, and I wanted to get my work out there, and I wasn't at all sophisticated or savvy about how to go about doing that. So when this opportunity presented itself, I jumped at it and just became a cartoonist as a matter of convenience. Was there a certain catharsis of like having this creative outlet when you had to do like artistically stuff that wasn't your art during the day? Well, uh, it was certainly good to know that I wasn't only devoting my time to working at that animation studio. Mm-hmm. I mean, I was I was glad that I that I had this other more meaningful work to do because uh, working at the animation studio was uh, very stultifying. So it wasn't a catharsis as much as it was uh, it was just good. <laughs> I was just glad to be doing this thing. I felt like it would, you know, it, would, it was a good thing I was doing there. Uh, one of the things you have coming up also is uh, you designed some toys for Yola Tango. Yes. Um, 
Tell me a little bit about that. Is that music you've been listening to, or was it they really enjoy your artwork? Well, I've had a a long-term relationship with Yola Tango. Back uh, before Yola Tango had its present lineup, James McNew was in a band called Christmas. And I I knew them, and I liked them, and I did some album cover art for them. And then when he joined uh, Yola Tango, I, when I started listening to them, I thought they were, and still do, of course. I mean, they're great. And uh, James and I are friends, and I've gotten to know... Uh, the other people in the band and uh, I like them and I like their music and they are also friends with Press Pop. This is a Press Pop production. Ah, okay. And so uh, they they contacted me and asked me if I would design these characters and storyboard this, write and storyboard a little animated film starring those characters and that's uh, that's part of the package. There's a DVD you can get that's got those characters and this animation that I wrote and storyboarded with their music as a soundtrack to it. Um, and I think there's a cart- something on YouTube folks can check out and I'll post the link. There is a little glimpse of it on YouTube. Yeah. I didn't have any, uh, you know, I just did the designs. I had nothing to do with the production of either the toys or the animation. But they still look very, uh, very wood ring. Yeah, well, they they went for the first <laughs> designs they came up with, which was unusual. Um, looking at problematic, um, and I was reading something. I think it was in problematic. We wrote about seeing someone that was disfigured on the street, and you had your sketch of that. And I was looking through the book at the kind of the odd folks, and sometimes real life situations, sometimes not. And I'm wondering. Um, in your sketchbook process how much you kind of um, take a situation and kind of transform it uh, into your sketchbook kind of not doing spot on exact drawing um, how that kind of changes well I guess it's like uh, when you're a little kid and you've got a record player you get tired of just listening to the record straight and you start putting marbles on it to see how soon they go (laughs) flying off of it or you know, you just, uh, I've never been a great natural draftsman, and I've always enjoyed, you know, distorting things as I draw them just as a way of uh, making the experience fun for myself. Do you still keep pretty cons- consistent with your sketchbook? Oh, yeah, yeah. I've, I've, I've drawn those little Moleskine sketchbooks, and I'm closing in on finishing two for this month. How many have you done since starting them in 2004? Uh, well, uh, at least one a month since then, so uh, it's well over 100 of them at this point. That's pretty prolific. Well, it's, uh, it's a pleasure. You know, if you've got one of those little books and a pencil in your pocket, you've got a portable studio. And uh, just having that when I'm on a bus or waiting in a waiting room or anything you know it's it's wonderful to be able to pull out that little book and make a note or a drawing or whatever do you find you use it into your process of what you're creating i'm sorry one more time does it work into the process of what you're creating for the books or does it kind of play a separate role well it's it's definitely connected i i sometimes deliberately work out ideas for stories that i'm trying to put together or i will just draw a monster or something unusual, knowing that I will have it for future reference if I can ever find it again, which gets harder and harder as these books stack up. It's uh, it's an adjunct to my regular work life. It's uh, I, I think of those things as idea batteries. Like if I need a distorted shape or a strange face or a machine or something like that, I can just go through the books at random and I'll find something. You mentioned earlier kind of... Um how looking at the surreal artwork um, in the gallery and seeing the underground comics really um, I can't remember the term but just it was, it was really impactful and also really kind of pushed you a bit I guess um, and I'm wondering if you find art that still does that for you that kind of pushes you or kind of um, works with how you see things yeah I do but not as much as I would like to 
I don't know if that's, uh, I don't know exactly what that is. I guess that's just a function of getting older. You know, the more you see the world, the sort of in a way, the less power it has to surprise you, at least the way that it used to. I still see, and I also, um, you know, when I, you know, when I first saw those surrealist paintings and I had no idea at all about their history or the personalities of the people who created them, they just presented themselves to me as enigmas, complete and potent and divorced from any kind of context. And now that I know something about the people who have created them, they've lost a little bit of that showroom shine. And mm-hmm. so that might just be a, a, a function of learning more about the world. The things that I see now that, that really intrigue me almost never hit me with the the, the the power that things used to hit me when I was more naive and more confused. I've done a pretty good job of turning myself into somebody who who has a pretty good human being act together so I can present myself, like I'm doing right now, I can present myself as kind of a normal guy who's been thinking about things and can talk about them. It's hard for me to actually be that way, but I have gotten better at coming off like that. Do you... um to situations like this, are they kind of generally uncomfortable? Um, no, they're interesting to me because it gives me a chance to think about and try to articulate things that are I almost never really think about or try to articulate. So it's uh, it's interesting to me to see if I can speak coherently and get my ideas across. So I enjoy it, and I'm, I'm <laughs> hugely flattered that you're interested enough in what I do to ask me to do it. I mean, it's a great privilege. Are you kidding? It's wonderful. I'm grateful. Well, I'm, I'm, and I, I'm not. A, no, it's not uncomfortable for me. It, I wouldn't want to listen to it after it's been recorded, but I don't mind doing this. Now, one of the things you did recently uh, was the giant pen. Um, yeah. And uh, you're using it, I think, at that Fanographics Follies thing that Larry Reed put together, at Bumbershoot. Um, oh, yeah. And, and and I'm really interested in that and kind of where that came from um, as an interest for creating such like such a tool. I mean, it's what six foot something. Yeah, the handle is six feet long, and the nibs are about sixteen inches long. How many nibs did you make for it? I made four of them. There's a one that's really elaborate. It's carved and shaped and gold plated, and it, they all work but that one I use mostly for show. That that pen is actually on display right now at the Fantagraphics Bookstore in Georgetown in Seattle. Oh, you just said that. Pardon me? Oh, go ahead. I was going to say, and I'm going to go in on Saturday and give a demonstration on on, with it, a public demonstration on how it works. That's on Saturday the 26th? Saturday the 26th at the Fantagraphics Bookstore, and I'll let other people who want to do it, take a stab at working with it, because it's kind of interesting. I've been making large drawings with it, and it's it's a whole different kettle of fish. It's it's uh, hard to think of a pen and ink image that will work at that size, and of course it's hard to control the pen itself, because if you want to, you know, you have to walk around the drawing table with this behemoth, and it's very, very hard to get smooth lines and and have it go exactly the way you want it to. So it's, had a, it's an interesting challenge. It's almost like one of Matthew Barney's drawing restraints. You know, these pictures would be very easy to make with a brush, but with this pen, it's just so frustrating and difficult that it adds a whole new dimension of interest to the process. <laughs> have you had many other artists trying it? I know um, you had Mark Bell using it at a gallery once. Yeah, yeah. There have been times when I've used it in public and people who are present have, have made some marks with it. It's interesting. I was uh, I was in a... There used to be a bookstore in London over by the British Museum. Philip Poole was the man who ran it. And it was a pen shop, a nib shop. And I chanced upon it the only time I was ever in London. And Philip Poole was a dapper old gent in a three-piece suit and he had some pen 
some nibs that were about four inches long, and I asked him if there were any larger ones than that, and he said, no, you couldn't make anything bigger than that because it couldn't work, and I wasn't inclined to have this limey tell me which end was up, and so I determined that one day I would make an enormous pen that would work, and I wanted to do it before he died, but I didn't manage that. But it was an idea that had been lurking in the back of my mind, and then when the opportunity to get such a project funded and built came along, that's what I did with it. Um, are and you the gonna... pen is great because, for one thing, it just is a fetish object. It's it's incredibly attractive. I can walk. I if I have to carry that thing down the street, women who have been in art school and who are now housewives will come out of their houses as if they're hypnotized and walk. Is that a pen? <laughs> oh my God! Can I see that? Can I hold it? How do you use it? Does it work? It works. Oh my God! They're really intrigued by it, much more than men are. I've noticed. That's funny. I guess men are less about the the hands-on-ness, maybe. Yeah, they just like it, you know? It's uh, it's a beautiful fetish object. Have you posted many photos uh, or the drawings that you've done with it? No, not many. There's a, there's a photograph. There's two big pictures up on the Fantagraphics website right now. Okay. that are on display. The pen and these two big drawings are on display at the store right now. Now, you and mentioned you'll be at the store on Saturday, and I know you're going to be at Short Run. I think that's uh, November 30th in Seattle. Right. Um, anything else, other events that you'll be doing in the next while we should let folks know? Signings? Uh, I think on December 7th I'm going to be at the Danger Room in Olympia, Washington kind of a low-key kind of thing, I think. No, I don't really have... Oh, and then I'm going to do a live... Do uh, you know Bill Frizzell, by any chance, the guitarist? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, he is going to do a show at Meany Hall on the University of Washington campus on November 10th, and I'm going to be drawing live to the music. Nice. Yeah, that'll be interesting. Bill is... Uh, a genius, as everybody knows, and his genius is so expansive that you can step inside it yourself. And so he's uh, made it possible for me to actually be in his band, drawing, responding to the music, and the people in the band responding to the drawing, all and in real time. You've done this a couple of times before. Yeah, we did it in in a, at a venue in Brooklyn last year, and then earlier this year, last month, in fact, in San Francisco. We did it at an institution called SF Jazz. And it was all Bill's doing. Put it all together and made it happen. So the what you're drawing, is it... I don't know if I caught this. Like, How how is it done? Is it like projected illustration? Or are you drawing on big sheets? No, I'm drawing on a Cintiq tablet. Oh, okay. It's being projected. Okay. How is that for you as, uh, as, uh, as an illustrator? Um, are you pretty comfortable with this antique? Do you have a preference? Oh, yeah, yeah. Well, I, what I do is very simple. I just do line work. Mm-hmm. So it's uh, very simple. It's just like drawing with a, a marker or something. But I, it was necessary to come up with an approach to this that would work. You know, I didn't want to draw a tree or a house or something like that. I wanted to really be responding to the music, so I worked out a vocabulary of shapes that, that I felt would, you know, kind of reflect the nature of the different little tiny pieces of music that he was playing and I make them all add up to something in the end. Would you have uh, like a repository of pre-prepared things that you'd bring in? Or I do. I have be... a music stand and I have uh, sort of cue sheets on it so that if I have to <laughs> the music shifts gears and I, I'm not able to shift quickly enough I can look up and I'll see something in the in the emotional range that I want to be in and I'll just go to that right away. Nice. Well, uh, at the University of Washington, that's just uh, by Bellingham, isn't that? Pardon me? The University of Washington, is that by Bellingham? It's in Seattle. Oh, it's in Seattle. Okay. Yes. I don't know my America well enough, I think. No, um, well, should, uh, yeah, it's quite a place. Yeah. Uh, well, thank you so much, Jim, for taking the time to chat with me today about your your, your comics. I really appreciate it. Well, thank you, Robin. I appreciate your, your interest, and uh, I'm sorry this conversation was so one-sided. You know, we should talk again sometime, and I can ask some, you some questions and learn about you.